from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is John Small, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. All right. So many small cannabis companies dream about being acquired by a huge multi-million dollar public company. But what if that dream becomes a nightmare? My guest today lived through that harrowing experience. But rather than back down, they actually took matters into their own hands. Haley Deneen and Lana Van Brunt are a Brooklyn-based duo behind Sackville & Company, which is a design-focused contemporary cannabis lifestyle brand. Haley and Lana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. So, okay, before we get into this story, I, give us a little background on what, what, how you started Sackville, why you started Sackville & Company. Give us a little bit of your origin story. Sure. So Sackville & Co. was started officially in 2018, but Lynn and I kind of had the brainchild for it in 2017. And it really came from our own experience. You know, we're both cannabis users and we just didn't see anything on the market that really fit the aesthetic and lifestyle that we live in cannabis. We're both women who care about design. We care about design in our homes and the fashion we buy and things like that. And we felt like there wasn't anything in cannabis that represented that same aesthetic. And that was really missing from the consumption experience. So Lana comes from an incredible background of branding and marketing. My background is in production and product design. And we came together to really come up with like, what is that focus? design forward cannabis consumer looking for and how could we bring that to market and that's kind of how Sackville was born it's interesting I mentioned you're you're not there now but you're both the companies in Brooklyn what's a New York company doing creating a product that is not even available in the New York market at least not yet yeah that's interesting we it's actually a kind of crux of the brand at this point as well just that New York base I think to start like there's two sections of this. One is that we never considered any of the products a cannabis product. We considered it from the beginning a consumer good. We saw the future of cannabis existing the same way as wine, as any other kind of consumption good in that sense, where you can buy, you know, beautiful decanter or wine glasses and you're decorating a bar card and you're kind of existing in it in a very like open social way. And so that's how we considered Sackville. So it was something that didn't matter where we were. And that's just happened to be where we were out of. That turned into, though, kind of this really deep ethos about the brand that is not what we saw a, this wave of stereotypes kind of implementing as this wellness based, like this very no shade on Cali, but like this very, you know, California weed and this the, the brand leaders that were in the market to, to begin with are very, very wellness based, like very, you know, you have to be their clean aesthetic, you know, they're kind of building their own potential stigmas in their own right. So for us, like New York weed, it's different. Like we don't give a fuck how you use weed. You're here. Like it has nothing to do with like, you know, you needing to use it specifically for mental health. If you want to get high and like laugh with your friends, that's exactly what we want you to do and just design the space accordingly for your lifestyle. So what kind of products do you guys make? We started out with our first product ever was our signature grinder, which is what we kind of tested the market with. And then we really wanted to 
reimagine how the entire consumption experience was through ancillary products. So from there, we really moved to rolling papers. We did two really beautiful oversized grinders, which kind of we've become known for our gilded grinder and our pillar grinder, which are very like statement pieces you could have on your mantle or, or coffee table. And then we've gone into pipes. We have an incredible crystal ball pipe, which has been featured in Architectural Digest and tons of other design mags. I'm looking at it right now. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we really go across the gambit. We also do some apparel and things like that. So yeah, it's anything that we really feel like touches the lifestyle experience of cannabis, we want to reimagine in our own way. And yet you're a non-touching cannabis company, non-plant touching cannabis company. Yes. Any plans to ever be a plant touching cannabis company? We actually, so we launched cannabis pre-rolls in California, as I just like threw shade on California. We have amazing pre-rolls that are available in California and we absolutely intend on continuing that forward. So we are a smoking brand, like everything we do is about flower and it's just like an extension of the brand to be able to offer the actual weed. And we're really, really, really picky. So it took us like over two years to create the collaboration. We worked with a farm that's in Santa Cruz. It's all like outdoor grow organic and terpene infused. It's just a really, really mellow, beautiful high. And it's something that we're actually really, really proud of. And we're bougie. So we're, you can trust us. (laughs) I trust you. And I trust you to tell me the story. Tell us all this story. So 2019 rolls around. Those are the pandemic years and you were acquired, right? Tell us about that experience. Yeah. So we end uh, October of 2019, we were acquired. And of course, anyone who's kind of in the space, like that starts with a million conversations, investment conversations, all that kind of stuff. And it was something that we ended up doing an acquisition because the partnership was so meaningful to us. And I think that's like an important flag for anyone who's taking on any investment or a full acquisition. Like the people, the partnership, the vision of all of that is really important. So it was completely aligned. It was one of the only female CEOs in cannabis at the time. And it was, it was something that we thought was really meaningful for the brand. I laugh because a short five months later we got, so it was, I remember all these dates, like it was yesterday. So March 9th, we got basically the CEO was let go without any notice. So March 9th, we found out in the morning that the CEO had been let go and we got a call that there was a new CEO. And then by like 3 p.m. that afternoon, the new CEO and the CFO who had been there before as well um, had gone on a call with us and said, thanks so much. We're bankrupting you. You're done. The company's done. Thanks for your time kind of thing. So obviously then a couple of days later was in New York, full shutdown. March 13th was complete wrap of the economy. (laughs) So we were within two days, like, of course, like no travel, no anything. So within 24 hours, maybe we had locked in legal and we pursued a lawsuit because we were actually an early stage company. So we had an earnout. We had a contract governing a remaining year of our acquisition. So we were able to luckily go at them for breach of contract. But of course the courts were closed because of the pandemic. We couldn't get, it was just this incredible, perfect storm of like everything that could go wrong. Courts were closed. We couldn't get a court date till 2022 because realistically they were expediting court dates for people for murder cases and things like that. Not really corporate disputes. So we 
had to fight like for months basically to keep the company afloat while it was locked in this battle. Yeah. And at that Um, time it was completely frozen. Like we couldn't do anything to progress the company for months because we didn't know what the end would be. And we didn't have any control of the finances of the company at all because it wasn't ours. So it was a really challenging time where we couldn't communicate to the outside world what was happening, but we were still trying to save face of like, we know in our hearts, this is an incredible brand. And if we can save it, it has so much value. And so we didn't want to let any of that out before we knew what the end would be. And they did offer a, like, there was a financial exit that we could have just had in some of those negotiations. But like Haley said, we truly believe in the brand and it was absolutely non-negotiable for us to continue to pursue building what we envisioned this company to be. Now, this public company that bought you, they don't exist anymore, right? No. Were they a Canadian company? They were a Canadian company who had acquired a bunch of American cannabis companies because they had, from our understanding, ambitions of really moving into the U.S. market. But then when COVID happened and the change happened, they let go all of their American. So what's the, hap- so tell me where you are now. Like, so what ends up happening after you were able to win back ownership of the company, right? Is that basically what happened? You were able to, how did that Yes. In that frozen period of trying to figure out how we were going to survive and also pay the legal bills that we were accumulating by fighting this battle, we propped up Sackville Studios, which was something that we had on our mind, but we hadn't put a ton of effort into it because we were working so hard on Sackville. And Sackville Studios really is our design agency that focuses on building out cannabis product design and branding for other brands. So brands that are not branded Sackville. We've been approached by so many people asking us if we could use you know, our design and branding lens and help them build out their product offerings and their brands. And at the time we were really busy, but then when this happened, and we were like, hey, this could be a really great opportunity. So we started putting energy into it and it ended up being an incredible opportunity. We're now the only cannabis-focused design and production firm in the industry. We work with uh, tons of MSOs. We work with tons of small brands. We're really designing and creating products for the future of the cannabis industry. So it was an interesting turn of events that ended up you know, great for us. And obviously then we got Sackville the brand back. Yeah, that's terrific. So what did you learn Because people are, a lot of people in the cannabis industry would be so excited to be acquired by a big public company. I mean, this is kind of what everybody wants, right? Or a lot of people want that experience, especially if the buyout is pretty significant and if you can still have an active role in running your brand. But what do you know now that you wish you knew then? Honestly, we talk about this. It comes up so often. It's it's endless. There's, you learn really fucking quickly when you're in that position, both from negotiating the contract and then negotiating fight back of your company. Like from the simplest form, like the most clear cut form of if you're contracting anything, you have to assume the worst. Take it seriously. There is, it is not a everyone from reviewing an NDA to all the way through to contracting with partners or whatever it looks like, like assume the worst, take contracts seriously, because you never think that a relationship is going to go sour, but it does. Had you assumed the worst, which happened, what would you have done differently in your contract? Would you have said that if 
I might just be a pessimist or something because we spent, you know, we, you know, ultimately I think, and it's same being two women in the industry. Like we were for lack of a better word, bullied pretty hard through contracting of being heavy handed, you know, that we were going to destroy the opportunity, these kinds of things. But we fought really hard over a period of like six months to get certain clauses in the contract and were not willing to back down on those. And those contracts included like, not being able to stop funding us, not being able to move us into a different role within the companies, different things during a certain time period so we could meet our revenue targets. And those things saved us. Like those were exactly what we were able to kind of come back to the table with. So it's something that we were luckily in a position where the contract was substantial, but it was, it was not it would have been very easy to back away from some of those conversations and just been like, yeah, this is, this is going to be great. Let's do it. You know, but ultimately we have yeah. to fight for those things. Like that's the simplest thing, but then there's a million like other things that we've learned from, you know, I think we're probably a lot less trusting, which sounds bad on a personal level, but in business, I think it's really important to make sure that you're managing partnerships and expectations and all that stuff really thoroughly. Yeah, I think also it's interesting with, especially when you're acquired by a public company, but really when you're taking investment in general, like you don't have control of the board. So that changed within minutes and it's not something we could have really foreseen. We really had a huge connection with this one CEO, but it wasn't our decision to change that. And so you have to recognize that some things are out of your control and really plan around what you would do if those changes happened. Right. How do you feel you vetted 48 North well enough before you got into business with them? I mean, there's obviously there's no way that you could have ever foreseen, or maybe not, maybe you could have foreseen that that CEO wouldn't last, but do you feel that you did proper sort of vetting? I think it's such an interesting question because you don't know what you don't know at the time. And there's so many things, much, (laughs) some things obviously much smaller than that acquisition going wrong, but that are failures. You know, you look back and it's like, if I would have thought this thing, or if I would have checked on this or whatever it is, like at the time, it absolutely, I no regrets was the right thing to do, but it doesn't change that new information comes quickly. And, you know, the more we discovered in hindsight, the more we realized that there probably was some red flags at the table that we didn't see. But again, it's like, you kind of don't know till you know, like it's when you're starting a business, you don't know what even red flags to spot. And this industry changes so much that the industry in 2019, especially with a Canadian public company is very different than the industry now and, and how things have moved. So yeah, it's a complicated in that way. Were you happy with your legal representation? Like, did you feel like some of your advice be like, make sure you have a really good lawyer? Like, what what would you look for in a lawyer? Oh, yes. Oh, he, yeah. The person who oversaw our litigation is phenomenal. And he's like a family member to us now, like still in communication. It really is like you're in the trenches. It's a very horrifying experience. So that was awesome. I think our counsel before was really great as well. Like you need to have like you're bearing everything to this person. If you have a lawyer that you don't feel comfortable saying some things to or something like that's wrong, whatever you want, whatever your fears, your hopes, your dreams with the whole thing, having that kind of dialogue so they can manipulate that into a contract that makes sure that you're 
your interests are held, I think is really, really important. So it's like almost like Loki, like a therapist for a business therapist, your lawyer. And they have to really understand the cannabis business, right? Specifically, because it's very unique and it's, they can't just be a lawyer that specializes in mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone says it, but it's true. It's like bad legal costs you much more than good legal (laughs) at the end of the day. What else did you learn? So assume the worst. That's nice. It's not a good party. Optimistic, right? Just assume. (laughs) Make sure that you vet properly. What else did you learn? I would say like on a positive, you know your own business. You you should know your own business. (laughs) You should understand what your long-term track is. And if you do really, really believe in what you're building and you see that that goal, then fight for it and go for it and try to achieve what you want to achieve. I mean, for us, silver lining, best thing that could have happened was us getting out of that acquisition. Like we couldn't be in a better position than not being in that acquisition. So tell why, explain that, why? Well, we ended up building Sackville Studios, which is an incredible business and has done um, wonderful things for us. Sackville itself as a brand has grown exponentially. Like Lana was saying, we released Flower in California. We're doing tons of really cool stuff in the next year. And, and just- that's all privately funded. Like we have 200% year over year growth where the company itself is sustaining itself completely. That's awesome. And so you wouldn't have started Sackville Studios if you had been part of that company, right? That just wouldn't have been, that necessarily wouldn't have come up as a, an option. Again, like Haley said, it was something that had, we, people had a lot of interest in, but I think we were so focused and it, that takes so much work to scale. Like we, our attempt was to scale Sackville and pretty quickly that I don't know that we would have given it the time that it needed to grow the way it did. So if a, if a big MSO were to now approach you and engage you in possibly acquiring you, would you do it at this point? Or are you happy being privately funded and not part of a big MSO? We are very happy being privately funded. We are though always taking conversations, it would, we're just a totally different company. You know, like we, we have, we're profitable. We have a business case that completely gives us, I think a bit more of the power seat to be able to, to make sure that the partnership and the scope of, of what that would look like is going to propel the business in the direction that we're looking for it to. So we're in a situation where yes, we would absolutely take on a partner, but it would have to be really the right partner. And probably wouldn't do an acquisition for, me for a little while. We're maybe a merger. <laughs> yeah, we're not looking for advice so much right now. Well, it sounds like you guys are pretty good on your own at this point. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think also there's a lot of, it's difficult as an entrepreneur in probably any industry to know, like Haley was saying, when to stick to your guns, when to fight, when to decide, like, if you don't see the vision, like, step out of my way, this is what we're doing get on board and when to take input and advice and when, so to pivot and like how you actually incorporate that determination and that you really have to have a narrow scope of your vision, but at the same time, be able to understand like what's working and what's not. But I think that that's the biggest add on to a 
partnership and where, when you're determining those types of things, like the things that are working and we're aware of, like this acquisition taught us how quickly and capable we are of pivoting and how resilient we are. So there's far less things that I think we need input on because we've been able to really hone in and pivot and adjust and build success. So no more mansplaining from from the partners up north. It sounds like there was quite a bit of mansplaining happening. (laughs) Yeah. And kind of like, I learned this early on in my career, but like facts are, fact is king. So you can have really great ideas, but if you're able to prove a business case and show that the ideas work, it's an absolutely different story. So that's also a, a big piece of the puzzle is like proof. Can't, you know, you can't really mansplain something if it's working. I mean, we, we joke about it, but did you find in the cannabis industry in general, there is still being a woman CEO in this business is challenging. There's a lot of men. And what's your take on that? Because there was some optimism early in cannabis, like, oh, this is going to be different. Yeah. And then boom. <laughs> and then it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's like worse than it was. Yeah. <laughs> but so you find that you are still come up against that a bit in the industry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in the C-suites in the industry and in a lot of the larger companies, it's still very, very skews heavily to men. However, if you look at like the fastest growing audiences, they're all women. It's Gen Z women, it's millennial women. And so you look at the opportunity and it's so heavily directed towards women. So it's interesting how that will change because we're seeing it even in studios. So we really want a, a female voice and a female opinion within their companies because they're missing a huge, huge demographic. Yeah. And it is changing. Like there's MSOs that are fully like the companies we work with, entire teams are women and stuff like that. There's still within investment and fundraising, those kind of things. It's still a very like a minefield for a woman. And I'm I'm certain everyone you would speak to would echo that. But there are still there's changes happening for sure. Like the teams that have women overseeing decisions at, you know, like some of these MSOs and stuff like that, like they're building brands that reflect a modern audience. And that includes everything that Haley was saying. It's like having a diversity of voice in terms of like design and perspective and and what that looks like and making sure that it's not one note. Well, I'm so glad that this has a happy ending and it sounds like it continues to have a happy ending, even despite kind of where we are right now in the industry, which is, you know, the industry is definitely going through some tough times right now. Are you feeling that? I mean, the markets are down. Thankfully, you're not in the markets. I mean, in terms of the those markets, public markets, is that affecting your business? Do you feel, or do you are you able to weather this storm? We're luckily, yeah, not in flower substantially. So we haven't seen a huge hit in terms of our audience. Like our consumers are wanting to stay home. They're wanting to share cannabis with their friends. We have a very, very um, accessible price point as well. So we're not really being hit in the same way that I think a lot of other players in the cannabis industry are. What about your B2B consulting part of your business? Honestly, it's still like, I think the biggest thing we're seeing there is that brands In that first wave of cannabis in the last five, 10 years, like every brand from MSO down really, really, really invested in like genetics, weed, like showing that they had the most powerful, the highest THC or like all this kind of stuff. And of course, long story short, we all know there's no brand recognition. There's no audience loyalty. There's, it's a like cutthroat for purchase dispensary shelf space. Like the whole thing is really difficult. And so because of that, although marketing budgets potentially are down and those things within large companies, because of the economic 
time that we're in. Brands are investing in product because from advertising restrictions and lack of brand loyalty and all these things, they understand they need to build a lifestyle and an ecosystem around the flower. So we've had just massive opportunity to help tons of brands because they don't have a space to advertise, like create really beautiful design forward products at a price point that exists for them, where people can be advertising on behalf of them, whether they're carrying their joint or not kind of thing. And also, you know, developing something that people feel confident in, in wearing. And, you know, with Gen Z and all these pieces, it's like, there's all of what we buy at this point is meant to signal our ethos. So from sustainability and what a brand stands for and the style associated and all those things are important. And I think cannabis brands are really finally realizing that and coming online to it. So we are still seeing growth within the product category and hope that continues. But I think it's a lot of the symptom of basically not investing in that in the first place. Well, if people want to find out more about Sackville & Co., where should they go? Holla at us. If you have, if you want to talk studios at all, it's hello at sackvilleandco.com. And then we have social channels. Instagram is at sackville.and.co our TikTok. We have a couple. Our TikTok oh, that's is fun. Sackville.co. Yeah. yeah, it's a vibe. Our website, our website for Sackville, uh, the brand is sackville.co. And then our website for Sackville Studios is sackvillestudios.co. So you can find all of our stuff there. Well, Lana and Haley, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing your great story with us. And I hope you have continued success with Sackville. Thank Co. you. Well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, head on over to greenentrepreneur.com for the latest cannabis and CBD news, thoughtful essays, tips, and insider tricks on how to succeed in the cannabis business, all that good stuff. And hey, if you like this podcast, do me a huge solid and go to wherever you may listen to your podcast and please rate and review our podcast. It does wonders for the algorithm, helps others find the podcast. Would so appreciate a review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.